Well, hello, and welcome to this week's of Photographic Life. Uh, in the last uh, week, Sky Television, uh, Sky Arts, actually, have launched a new six-part series uh, titled uh, Icon Music Through the Lens. It's basically a series of uh, episodes about music photography featuring uh, really some of the very best uh, music photographers out there. And as such, very interesting because although these photographers are working within the music area, they are intrinsically portrait photographers or documentary photographers. Documentary photographers creating the live music stuff and, of course, portrait photographers creating the portraits. And um, I also, in the last uh, week, watched the film on Jim Marshall. Jim Marshall, the uh, music photographer, uh, through the late 60s and 1970s. Uh, somebody really worth checking out. Anyway, so the whole point about this, uh, why am I talking about it this week? Well, one of the questions that came up in the first episode was, what makes a photograph iconic? And I think the truth about that is the viewer. The viewer makes the photograph iconic. The more an image is seen, the more it is identified as being of that moment. And if we think about the reality of being a photographer, as we all know, you're not judged on the photographs you take, you're judged on the photographs you show. And therefore, it's all about editing. It's all about editing in the moment, choosing that moment to actually press the shutter, but also choosing the frame that you're going to show. And it is in that editing process and how good you are at that editing process that you define your kind of perception, how you're perceived by people as a photographer. So the iconic image begins at the moment that it's shot. It then sort of goes through a process, a process of choosing and editing. But then the viewer makes it iconic through your sharing of that photograph. If you choose not to uh, share that photograph, there's very little chance of it ever becoming iconic. During the 1960s and 70s, many of the images, uh, Janis Joplin, uh, Jimi Hendrix, The Beatles, Bob Dylan, uh, iconic images were turned into posters that covered the walls of every teenage boy and girl's bedroom or student dorm. As we progressed through the 1970s, David Bowie or Mark Bolan or the Sex Pistols or The Clash kind of responded to that. As we went through the 1980s, perhaps that was George Michael or it was Queen. So those images become iconic images and, and through that these music photographers become iconic music photographers. But there was one photographer in the programme who kind of was ruining the situation that they found themselves in because they'd created lots of images of these great music icons. But they'd never really shown the pictures and therefore the pictures hadn't become iconic and therefore they'd lost out financially. 
I think probably the best story that kind of illustrates what I'm talking about here is some work created by the photographer Gavin Evans that I've spoken about and written about previously. Many of you may know his David Bowie picture with Bowie holding his finger up to his lips and just shushing. Gavin had that image for many years and didn't show it to anybody. It was kind of a hidden image. It wasn't like Brian Duffy's Aladdin Sane image that everybody knew or Terry O'Neill's image with Bowie with the dog leaping up at you. Gavin's image was sitting on a hard drive or in a drawer. With the death of Bowie, Gavin made it available and very quickly it became the iconic image of the moment and of Bowie. It was used as the backdrop at the Sotheby's exhibition, uh, sorry, auction, not exhibition, well, auction and exhibition, I suppose, but the auction of Bowie's own artworks. It was then stolen by many companies making T-shirts and sweatshirts, and it was turned into graffiti, and it took on a whole life of its own. It's given Gavin a nice living, I'm sure, coming out of that. But for so many years, it sat doing nothing. So it's the viewer that makes the photograph iconic. It's the amount of times it's seen. And its iconography is as much to do with that dissemination as it is with the creation of the image at the very beginning. The end of the, the last century, I spent a lot of my time working in fashion photography. And therefore, I've always had a soft spot for it. I've always enjoyed it. And I've always seen it as being really important in the kind of the evolution of photography, really, and how we see things. However, so often I felt fashion photography really kind of lets itself down by just sort of showing us shallowness, which isn't really appropriate either to the subject matter that they're hooking onto or to the photographer who actually I might think is a really good photographer. Of course, the film that shows this most clearly is Who Are You, Polly Magoo, the William Klein 1960s film that uh, completely and utterly uh, destroys any kind of uh, respect, I suppose, that anyone could have for the fashion industry when uh, Klein decided to send his models down the catwalks in metal clothes that cut the models. Anyway, why I'm talking about this in particular is in the last week I saw in ID magazine online um, a headline initially, and the headline said this. It said, Alistair McClellan photographs our fantasy lockdown 2.0 uniform. I was intrigued because it seemed incredibly crass to use something like a lockdown, um, which affects so many people in a negative way, as a fashion hook. I was even more kind of depressed, I suppose, to see the 2.0 to try and make this second lockdown that we're going through in the UK a cool thing. So I clicked on the link and I looked at the work. Stylist Jane Howe augments the season's lingerie-inspired looks with archive vintage pieces, said the uh, subsidiary headline. What actually followed were a series of photographs of a model uh, in lingerie. I didn't get any idea of any sense of lockdown at all. 
Um, it seemed to me to be incredibly selfish in its approach and incredibly narrow-minded in its understanding of the COVID situation that the world's going through. So I actually started, I, I wrote down here on my notes, which are usually scribbled on a piece of paper. After that headline, I wrote, really? Question mark. And that's kind of how I felt. So a real shame to see that fashion photography still finds itself being drawn into these very shallow um, approaches to subjects which are really important. Toscani did it brilliantly. I think here McClellan's failed badly. Just talking there of my time working in magazines, I suppose the one photographer who's kind of remained with me as a constant throughout those decades at the end of the 20th century as a dance photographer, and I think the greatest of all the dance photographers, uh, is Lois Greenfield. And uh, I'm really honoured to have Lois join us this week on the podcast. If you're not aware of Lois Greenfield's dance photography, let me just give you a little bit of information about her and her career. So Lois began her career as a photojournalist, but was drawn to the graphic potential of dance and covered the experimental New York dance scene for the Village Voice from 1973 to the mid-90s. In 1982, she opened a studio where she could not only control the light, but could also direct the dancers in her exploration of the expressive possibilities of photographed movement. Her unique approach to photographing the human form in motion has radically redefined the genre and influenced a generation of photographers. I know I've shown her work to many photographers over the years. She's worked with most of the contemporary dance companies from the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theatre to American Ballet Theatre. Many of these photos have appeared in her two books, Breaking Bounds in 1992 and Airborne in 1998. Her latest book, Lois Greenfield Moving Still, was released in 2015, and the accompanying exhibition has been on tour with the US, uh, to the US, I should say, within the US, that would be more correct, and to Russia, China, and Colombia. In 2014, 2015, she was an artist in residence at the uh, NYU Tisch Department of Dance and New Media. And in 2015, she was honoured with the Dance in Focus Award given by the Film Society of Lincoln Centre and the Dance Films Association. Uh, in 2016, Lois received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the McCallum Theatre Institute. And her, her clients include Disney, Orangina, Procter & Gamble, Pepsi, Haynes and Rolex. That's a lot of talk from me. Let's hear from Lois. I started off as a photojournalist and travel photographer, but started shooting for the dance column of the Village Voice from the 1970s through the 1990s. The most important aspect of my photography at the time was the merger of the two art forms, photography and dance and putting it together as a unique hybrid. At the beginning, I was shooting in theaters with a 35 millimeter camera during dress rehearsals. For a fashion assignment, I was asked to shoot with a square format V-series Hasselblad. I invited a couple of dancers to my studio to improvise as I needed to practice using this two and a quarter format camera. And that changed everything. 
It's counterintuitive to shoot dancers in the confinement of a square format, and the results were so unexpected. I never looked through the viewfinder, because if I waited to see the moment I wanted in the frame, it would have been too late to capture it. I always shot the moment that looked like something was about to happen or had happened. And the black border of the square format frame <clears throat> created unusual entrances and exits for the dancers. <clears throat> through, the <clears throat> through this, I found a new awareness of the dynamic tension between the two art forms, dance and photography, and my allegiance were to both. I asked the dancers to improvise for the camera. The split seconds I caught were invisible to the human eye and could only be seen as a photo because our brains don't register split second. I realized that the moments I shot were all transitional, beneath the threshold of human perception and therefore could only be viewed as a photograph. These experiments culminated in my first two books, Breaking Bounds and Airborne. My latest book, Moving Still, features dancers again improvising for the camera and seemingly spinning out their dreams. I love the ambiguity in the photographs. Is the dancer jumping up or floating down? The question, what moments preceded the moment of capture and what moments will follow it? What I find so fascinating about photography is that one, one 250th of a second of improvisation becomes as solid as sculpture. The dancers <clears throat> give the passage of time a substance, materiality, and space. When people ask me about my process, I can only explain it this way. A typical photo shoot is like a careening vehicle. I get in the car, then realize I didn't take a road map. I get off the highway and meander down small roads, some of which <clears throat> lead nowhere. At the end of the journey, I realize my destination is wherever I happen to find myself. Frankly, if I knew what the finished picture would look like, I wouldn't bother to shoot it. My interest in this process is to get beyond my imagination rather than documenting an already formulated idea. I'm not interested in preserving a moment, but in creating a moment that can be only seen as a photograph. <clears throat> Most photographers want to capture what they see. I want to capture what I can't see. And we humans can only see the passage of time. We can't see time standing still. A photograph of movement is inherently surreal. You see something completely true that actually happened yet it's out of the grasp of human perception. Actually, it's a neurological disorder to see stilled images. Thank you, Lois, for your contribution this week. And I love the way it ended. Well, there was a little bit of laughter in your voice there, which I thought was um, really great to, uh, to hear. Uh, so much stuff there to unpack. But interesting, I think, also that we started off at the beginning of the uh, podcast talking about documenting and portraits. I think that's exactly what Lois brings together, a documentary portrait, if, in, if you like, in, in her work. So if you're not aware of her work, check it out and have a look at it. She's been doing it for a long time, and she really is the best. 
speaking about the best, something I wanted to talk about um, this week, which I spoke a little bit about last week, is the book of uh, What Does Photography Mean to You? That's the title of the book, and it's a compilation of 89 of the photographers who have contributed to this podcast over the past couple of years. The book's available from Blue Coat Press. That's www.bluecoatpress.co.uk. It's a little book that fits into your pocket. It'll fit into your camera bag. It'll uh, sit next to the downstairs toilet for a bit of toilet reading, if you really feel that's the, the need. But anyway, it's only £9.99 plus post and packaging. And I really think it's full of great advice and um, great information, great consideration from great photographers. So there you go. Why not get your own copy of that? Or why not buy a couple of copies for friends you may have who are photographers? The perfect Christmas gift. I know it's only November, but we all know that that's coming soon. So there you go. That's available finally. Uh, there's also going to be a talk. So check out on at UN of photo um, for the details of that talk between myself and Bill Shapiro. I sometimes say Shapiro. I should say Shapiro because uh, that's how he pronounces his name. And Bill's the former editor of Life magazine. And we'll both be talking a free talk. Uh, online talking about the process of making the book um, the kind of themes that we talk about every week here how we actually made the book happen which is maybe an interesting story in itself and how this podcast um, comes together so as it comes together and so it ends thanks very much for listening this week i hope you've enjoyed it and i hope you're looking after yourself the news of the vaccine brought a little light didn't it into these slightly dark days, as did the arrival of Joe Biden. Goodness only knows what the coming weeks are going to mean for our American friends and listeners with the Trump show on the road. But all I know is you and I should take care. Mm -hmm.